classic line from an authority figure who is caught in some inconsistency. There are many examples in the scriptures of followers of the Lord who ought to be followed. To the degree that they follow Christ, they should be followed. But today and next week and the remaining weeks covering judges, we come to families and tribes whose ways are not to be followed. Instead, they are to be avoided. They are great examples of how not to live, of how not to worship, of how not to conduct their lives. The author is telling us, we have this religious language throughout these 13 verses. There is a lot of religious language, some of which we find in our own liturgy, in our own order of service, which we'll look at in a minute. But the author is telling us not to be deceived. Not all that sounds spiritual really is. Not all religion is truly reverential. With this chapter, we come to the final section of the book. Chapters 17 through 21 are the last phase in the book of Judges. You might recall many months ago, we, have, we had two introductions. And then from 3 down to 16, we had the meat of Judges, all the 12 Judges. And now at Judges 17, to the end of the book, we have the final section, which actually chronologically takes place before the time of the judges. It's confusing, isn't it? It takes place after Joshua and his appointed elders, but before the first judge. Does anyone remember the name of the first judge? Rhymes with Bothniel. Othniel, good job. Okay. And so this seems confusing, but the author wants to highlight for us the predicament that Israel found himself in, crying out for a king who would rule with wisdom, who would rule with might, who would rule with righteousness. And when we finish Judges 21, we will feel like we're forced to drink sewage from a fire hydrant. It is, yes, you would be the appropriate response. It is not pretty. Sin never is. It is distasteful even though at times we like the way sin tastes. But it is never pretty, even when we try to dress it up in religious clothing, as we see here in this text. At the same time, in a period that is hopeless to the eyes of flesh, hope and grace can still be seen. As we often say, the good news assumes the bad news. And just a warning, we must buckle ourselves up for a few chapters of bad news. And I see some new faces here. You're visiting on a section of bad news. But that's okay. There's a lot of bad news in the Bible. And there's a lot of good news too. The main point of the sermon is that when there is no king in the house, worship is a self-delusion, not a spiritual delight. Throughout these final chapters, the church has taken on a worldly appearance. Remember, we are talking about the, the church here. This is the church under age, the church in the Old Testament, the people of God, the people set apart by God for God, and they are looking like the world more and more as these chapters progress. You could say the character of the people is devolving, not getting better. 
And the story of Micah and the Levite carries into the next chapter, chapter 18, but there is enough in these two chapters to warrant two separate messages. In fact, many more messages than two could be given. And we have the introduction of a whole tribe in the next chapter. So I want to take chapter 17 on its own. What's going on in this chapter? It may be helpful to know from the very beginning that the name Micah means who is like the Lord. It's just a variation of Michael. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? And so as you come to this text, you see in verse 1, whose name was Micah, you are supposed to, as the reader, ask, will this man be like the Lord? Am I to follow this man? Who is like the Lord? Is he giving an accurate portrayal of the Lord? And so we have a man who is supposed to imitate the Lord. He's from the hill country of Ephraim and, like all men, has a mother. He comes to his mom and he makes a confession. He says, Mom, do you you remember all of that money of yours that someone stole from you? Do you remember how you got somebody stole 1,100 pieces of silver? Remember how you then pronounced a curse on the thief who stole all that silver? Do you remember that, Mom? Well, it was I. I took it from you. I stole it. It was me. And what does she do? She turns that curse into a blessing. She says, oh, may you, my son, be blessed by the Lord. It's not typically what a parent says to a child who is caught in his sin or who confesses. Yes, there is to be that assurance of pardon, that grace given. But you don't really say, oh, blessed be you, O child. So she turns the curse into a blessing, and Micah's mom sets apart this money for her son. For what purpose? To make a carved idol and metal image. That's what the silversmith then does. This money is taken, carved idol, molten image is made, and what has been made now enters Micah's house. And this is now placed with all the other gods in the house. Micah even consecrates one of his own sons to become his priest in their mini-pantheon, this house of many gods. The author is silent for the most part, but we know from Scripture, and even from verse 6 here, that God does not approve. Verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How many times have we come to that refrain? That's the author stepping out and saying, this is bad news. This is not to be commended. What we have here is actually a system of worship without the substance of real worship. So even though all of this looks Levitical, even though all of this looks churchy, It is highly disobedient. Again, we have the system of worship without the substance. There is language of sin. Do you see this? It was clear both to Micah and to mom that stealing was a sin. That's why he fessed up. That's why she pronounced a curse on the thief. It's wrong to steal someone's money. 1,100 pieces of silver, that's a lot of money. And so if you said, hey, Micah, hey, mom, Is there such a thing as sin? They would say, of course. And here we have an instance of that great sin, theft. 
But idolatry? Eh, not so much. Or rather, idolatry has to be redefined, doesn't it? It has to now accommodate all these other gods. Because after all, these other gods assisted the Lord, didn't they? Surely they have assisted the Lord in bringing them this prosperity, this wealth, this land, this great house of worship. And with the mention of 1,100 pieces of silver, we are meant to connect this act of Micah's to Delilah's act towards Samson in just the previous chapter. You'll recall that she had betrayed Samson for 1,100 pieces of silver. So we have language of sin, and we have language of confession. We may at first be encouraged to read Micah's confession. We might be rooting for him, rooting for the cause of grace. This is wonderful, Micah. You said that it was you who sinned against your mom. You stole it. You confessed it. Praise be to God. But we know our book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. This is similar to a teacher. Let's just say a teacher walks into her classroom and she sees on the whiteboard black writing with permanent marker. That's hard to get out, isn't it? And that has happened in many a classroom. But the, uh, the teacher suspects the culprit. Perhaps this culprit has done similar things before. But she doesn't just out his name or her name. Says, hey, this is bad news here. Okay, somebody wrote on this whiteboard. Got to use it well. Somebody needs to fess up to this. If I find out who did this, it's going to be worse than if you just came here and told me. And then looking in the general direction where the culprit is sitting. That's what's going on here. Micah, uh, Micah is in earshot of this curse that Micah's mom is pronouncing. You know, if anyone happens to have stolen my money, and she looks over at her son, this person's going to be cursed. It's going to be worse if he doesn't fess up. She suspects her son. Micah has heard the mom's curse in his presence, but his confession shows that he fears his mom more than the Lord. There is language of sin, there's language of confession, there's language of repentance, but this repentance also fails to measure up. Again, in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, tells us what he is supposed to have done. He is supposed to restore fully what he had taken and then add a fifth to it. He should have given her 220 pieces of silver on top of the original 1,100 to function as a deterrent for next time, to uh, make up for the inconvenience, the time that she could have um, had some interest on that. She could have um, invested that money and gotten some gains from that investment. And so to accommodate those inconveniences, she, he should have added 220 pieces of silver. But he doesn't do that. That wasn't the full process either. He would then have to go to the priest and be forgiven of his sin and of his guilt. But Micah makes no 
effort at real restitution here for his significant theft. And mom doesn't hold him to Leviticus, which at time, at this time, she should have held him to. Remember, Leviticus is the book of is God's word. So the language of sin, confession, repentance, there's also language of blessing here. Mom's actions are not really any better than her son's action. We have a classic case of like mother like son here. Where do you think her son gets these wild ways from? And notice there is no there's no father figure in this story. That his absence is very significant. But mom overlooks her son's behavior. Most likely moved out of love, but not love for the Lord. Instead, she doesn't want her son really to see the error of his ways before he gets restored. She's so quick. She says, hey, it's okay, it's okay, no, no worries. I don't want you to be cursed because you're my son. And so she immediately rescinds the curse that she had pronounced on the thief, which she most likely would have kept if it were not her son who was a thief. Maybe she would have said, well, we've got to follow the book of Leviticus here. Okay, what does Leviticus say? Given the full extent of the law. But no, she, she blesses her son. There's even language of giving and tithing in this text. Did you notice that mom does what mom does with the money that's been restored to her? She has dedicated these dollars to God, but then she gives them to herself and her son. Do you see that? 1,100 pieces of silver were dedicated to God, but notice what God gets. God gets 200 out of the 1,100. She keeps 900 pieces for herself, then gives the rest to her thieving son, and for what purpose? Idolatry. So what God gets is really not what God gets, but what, you know, to help that, uh, the cause of idolatry. This is like uh, one minister compared this action to tithing to your own kids. I'm, I'm assuming that when the tithes and offerings plates came around, that you adults, when you gave your tithes, you didn't take a portion of that tithe and then say, here, child, you get a portion of this. And make sure you use it for your false gods. That's what's going on here. We have the system of worship. We have all the religious language here in this text. But there is more craziness still going on. And this is just the first section. This is just the first six verses. We have a center of worship where there should be no center of worship. There is ordination. Idolatrous Micah is not like the Lord. We are very clearly seeing that, aren't we? The Lord who ordained priests from the tribe of Levi. Micah is from Ephraim. He's not from the line of Levi. Micah has then no authority to ordain this person, his son. We know nothing about his son's spiritual walk. We know nothing about his son's age, which is a requirement if you're going to be a priest. And they're from the same tribe. Everything is speaking against this ordination. Nevertheless, Micah insists on ordaining one of his own sons to be a priest, a priest for his own house of worship. And when a true Levite happens upon them, then Micah replaces his son as a priest, or perhaps he simply adds this Levite to his house's priesthood. And so here, Leviticus should be followed. Here, he, he was going to receive blessings because, hey, I have, a, I have a Levite now as a priest. 
It just, show, it just goes to show us, doesn't it, that we're very selective with our sin. We're very selective with our obedience. We were just talking about this in uh, ABF this morning, about uh, one way that we break the third commandment is by misusing God's word to justify our own actions. So we'll appeal to one text to justify what we do, but we'll forget about the other texts that help us to better understand our own course of action. But all of this is taking place where? In his house, not in the house of God, which we find out later on in the next chapter is actually in Shiloh, chapter 18, verse 31. And finally, in the center of worship, there is language of blessing. There is prosperity. Verse 13, then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Now I'm confident I'll be blessed. He has the audacity to believe that he will be blessed. He thinks that he is following the law of God. How could he think that? He has introduced other gods in the presence of God. He probably has some uncertainty when he ordained his son to be a priest. I don't know about this, but hey, hard times call for desperate measures. I have to worship God, don't I? Who knows how he was thinking, how he was sinfully rationalizing. But now that he has found a true Levite, his house of worship can be legitimate. Now he can expect divine blessings, plentiful prosperity to flow from the hands of the Lord. Gordon Ketty in his commentary says, Micah is a classic case of a man being fully satisfied, fully at peace, and fully expectant of God's blessing, while all the time being spiritually dead. Here's a man who has great peace that is unfounded. It is not grounded in the grace of God. So the application point here is that true worship is to be regulated by God's prescription, not by man's imagination. Now, I covered this last week in the Adult Bible Fellowship on the Second Commandment, that there are a couple things to add to that discussion that we see here. There is a difference between external worship and internal worship. True worship regards both the forms and heart of worship. Now, some have erred in thinking that the Lord does not care about worship forms, doesn't care about what actually we do, Citing the Spirit's freedom, having a low view of the law. People will say that it doesn't matter how you worship, just that you worship. The fact of worship, the fact of sincerity is sufficient for true worship, is what some will say. And oftentimes, Psalm 51 will be misapplied. Doesn't God's word say that he he doesn't delight in sacrifices, but in a contrite, broken spirit? Surely Psalm 51 says that, because God does delight in a contrite and broken spirit. He delights in true humility, real confession of sin, real repentance. But sometimes we then don't read the rest of Psalm 51, which ends with offering burnt offerings and bulls on the altar. God did not want giraffes on the altar. He didn't want horses. He didn't want kitty cats. Of course, he didn't want kitty cats. And he even didn't want little puppies on the altar. 
He had a particular set of animals he wanted on the altar, and those animals had to be offered in a certain way by certain people in a certain place. He had real forms for real worship. Surely, Jesus wants us to worship both in spirit and in truth. He wants us to worship according to his word. We don't just make things up as we go and say, well, this is how God, in my mind, is to be worshipped, and because I am sincere about this, God is going to accept this worship. John Calvin says, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. What this means, then, is that he actually approves of the forms that he has given to us. Now, we did a whole ABF series on this, I think it was last year, on corporate worship and every element of the service and the biblical rationale for each of those elements. You can look that up on Sermon Audio if you want. God cares about the forms. At the same time, everywhere in Scripture, God condemns formalism. God does not approve of simple external conformity to the forms. Say, well, I've followed all the forms. I've crossed all of my my T's. I've dotted all of my liturgical I's. Then the Lord will accept my service. No, he, he wants the heart. Now, There's a, a cheesy 90s Christian song, which doesn't really narrow it down. <laughs> Much of the 90s Christian music is a bit cheesy. There's a song called Heart of Worship. Perhaps you know this song. And there are some good things about it and some things that say, well, good, well, good song for the time. Okay. One of the lines is, a song in itself is not what you, what you have required. A song in itself is not what you have required. And I remember singing a song many times as a 90s kid. And it's a good line. Because a song in itself is not what God has required. God has required songs. We are commanded to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So God cares about the forms. But a song in itself is not what is required. I got myself in trouble many moons ago. This was when I was a teacher. And I taught Bible, taught senior Bible this given year. And uh, had a lot of students who were going to one of those mega churches. And uh, all kinds of shenanigans are, being, are happening at this place. And some of the students were telling me what they were experiencing in this church service, like week after week. And one of them, several of them actually said that uh, during the tithes and offerings, M&M, not the candy, the godless rapper, okay, M&M's music was being played while tithes and offerings. If you don't know who M&M is, do not look him up, okay? It's not a recommendation. <laughs> but you know who he is, and you know that his music is not edifying to the soul, It does not encourage one to worship God. And I had asked for a a meeting with the the pastor, and it was just going to be him and me, but then he brought in his posse, and it was like five against one. And I just wanted to share my concerns. Hey, I have a lot of students that I'm trying to teach, and you really should reconsider the kind of music that you play during your worship service. Don't you think you should reconsider that? 
no, 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 all music is God's music, and we just think whatever is right, we'll, uh, whatever we want to really get people in the, in the mood, energized to give to God. Okay. Another line in this song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus, which, being charitable, sure. We worship, there's only one redeemer of God's elect, Jesus Christ. And yet it's, there's more to it. There's the Father and the Spirit. We worship Father, Son, and Spirit. But what I like about that line is, it isn't about us. Corporate worship is not about you and me. We are involved, and we receive great spiritual blessings in the worship, but it isn't about us. It isn't about the feelings that we get, though we do get feelings when we reflect on, say, certain song lyrics, scripture readings. Yes, this this hit me. I needed this today. But worship is not about us. We are not worshiping ourselves. This whole thing is to worship God. He alone is worthy of worship. So he alone is to be worshiped. And we see that this is not what's going on in this text. And often, it's not what's going on in our hearts, in our lives. Everywhere in Christ's ministry, he spoke against obeying only the forms. In Matthew 15, verse 8, citing the book of Isaiah, our Lord says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So there is a kind of lip service that is given to God that some are understanding as real worship, real honor. And the Lord is saying, they are worshiping in vain because their heart is not really worshiping. God wants the heart. Our triune God is seeking true worshipers, not simply those who follow all the rules but dishonor the rule giver, nor simply those who have no care for the law. J.H. Bovink, so Herman Bovink's nephew, says, a life really saved is a life in which the law is humbly accepted and kept with thankfulness. This is the third use of the law, which is the original use of the law. This is what the psalmist can say. How I love the law of God. How I love that God has revealed himself to us in his word. He has declared for us his will for us. And I love him, and so I want to follow him. There is external versus internal worship, but there's also private worship versus public worship. This text shows us family worship at its worst. And don't, understand, don't misunderstand me. The text is not to be understood as God forbidding private worship, forbidding family worship. We don't look at this text and say, well, this was a bad example of family worship, so we shouldn't do it. That's that same kind of Mistaken theology, uh, mistaken interpretation has influenced, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say, we're not doing any birthday celebrations. Well, why? Because every single birthday celebration in Scripture, somebody is doing nasty things or someone's being killed. Well, we don't say, family worship, throw that out the window because of what we have here. God wants you to worship privately. God wants you to worship with your family. But This is to highlight how the individual's worship preferences have eclipsed God's prescription. 
It is to show the idolatry of prioritizing man-made worship over God-given worship. Just me and my Bible will not do. Just me and church online will not do. Just me and my family will not do. Just me and my covenant group will not do. So many scriptures speak to the importance, the necessity, and the goodness of corporate worship. Psalm 84.10 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Do we believe that? Well, you're here. Well, take that as a yes. Psalm 87, verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. What does that mean? It means God loves corporate worship more than covenant group, more than men's Bible study, more than women's Bible study, more than any other organic gathering in which you would study the Bible, in which you would fellowship with one another. Don't throw those out the window, but prioritize corporate worship. This, when the people of God are assembling to give corporate praise to our triune God, this is the best. This is the best day of the week for that very reason, because this is the day that is given for the corporate worship of God. And not only is God glorified, but we, his people, are edified, aren't we? Week after week, our God is good. Worship is his due, and there are gifts for us in this worship service. Well, verse 7 says, Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And so, as I mentioned earlier, Micah believes his worship system is now legitimate, now under the favorable, prosperous hand of God, because now he has a Levite for a personal minister. And in this chapter, we are reminded that both money and men are bad saviors. Do you see the love of money at every point in this chapter? And if you don't, it's in the next chapter as well. Micah wanted those 1,100 pieces of silver. If he didn't want them, he wouldn't have stolen them. Mom needed that money. In a world of uncertainty, you need as many gods as you can buy. Likewise, this Levite, far from home, he needed to survive, didn't he? And so what is a little compromise? J.H. Boving talks about the allure of money. He says, money is pure possibility, pure potentiality. That is the real romance of the money concept, something that at the same time gives it an awesome allure. Surely we all know this allure, don't we? The imagination can go crazy just thinking about all the possibilities if we just had a little more money. How many of us have entertained that thought process of what we would do if we won the lottery? Maybe we play it, maybe we don't. What would I do? Where would I go? What would I buy? How secure would I be if I just won the lottery? Okay, the government takes most of it, but, but I'll still have a, an ample amount, more than what I did before. What would I do with it? The heart can go crazy with a thought like that. But you know what they say. Money can't buy holiness. At least they should say that. I said it. Money is a gift from God, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Micah's traitorous conduct is this third betrayal for money in the book of Judges. Do you remember in Judges chapter 9, verse 4, Gideon's 70 sons were betrayed and killed for 70 pieces of silver. 
And in back in chapter 16, Delilah betrays Samson for 1,100 pieces of silver from each of the five Philistine lords, 5,500 pieces of silver. And now Micah betrays his mother for 1,100 pieces of silver. Money is an excellent reward for betrayal. It has to be, right? If the Savior is going to be betrayed for it. If the Holy Christ, the Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, who can kick demons out of a person, who can calm storms, who can turn water into wine, who can turn loaves of bread and fish into thousands. Money has to be that alluring if you're going to betray the Savior for it. But just ask Judas if those 30 pieces of silver really paid off. I hope you don't have an opportunity to ask Judas. We could summarize a chapter with money was king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Money led the way. And how often do our own lives show a functional betrayal of the Christ for that coin? How often do our choices reflect our love for the almighty dollar over the almighty? Again, Boving says, money is a ticket to everything on the market, but cannot buy the only item that makes life pleasant. And what is that only item that makes life pleasant? According to Boving, it is redemption. You cannot by your salvation. That's why we're told, come to the waters without any money. Come, receive. Eat to your heart's content. Drink fully. Because it's all of grace. Money ends up a failure for a savior. But so do men. As pictured in Micah's own Levite. Now, attention has been made on Micah and his mom, but this Levite is also a guilty party. Do you see that? Why is this Levite so far from home? And by that, I mean the home of God. Why is he looking for a place to serve? He knew that God had appointed one place for him to minister to God. He knew that there were cities allotted where God's Levites could live, and he isn't in any of those places. This Levite is called upon to be the man's priest, but he ends up the man's puppet. Do you see that? Notice the switch. Verse 10, Micah says to the Levite, be to me a father and a priest. And the next verse, it says the Levite became to him like one of his sons. I need you to be a father and a priest to me. I need you to lead me in worship. And now, just one verse later, It's, I actually don't need you to lead me in worship. I want you to approve of what I do. He is not the father figure to bring in true order, to usher in real reverence to God in this home. He is now the son, like Micah's other sons, who is expected to place the religious rubber stamp on all of Micah's idolatrous ways. You can't say I'm an idolater because I have this Levite right here who is sanctioning all of my actions. Tragically, it says, the Levite was content to dwell with the man. 
This Levite, steeped in the RPW, the regular principle for worship, this man who knew the book of Leviticus, who knew the book of Deuteronomy, who knew the book of Numbers, who knew the law of God, who knew where he could go and where he shouldn't go, who knew how sacrifices were to be given, who knew where God was to be worshipped, this man was content to dwell with Micah. Now, by contrast, there was a man named Alexander McCloyd in the 18th century. After graduating from seminary, he got what every seminarian wants. He got a call to be a pastor. So everyone, everyone who's graduating from seminary is itching to have that first call. And two congregations call this man to be the pastor. That is to say, two congregations for him to serve as pastor of both at that time. There were more congregations than there were ministers. So often a minister would pastor two, three, sometimes four congregations, do his rounds. So one in Coldenheim, one in New York. But he declines. Can't do it. Now, why does he decline? Not enough money? Bad location? Bad weather? No. He declines for this reason. That there were slaveholders in the Coldenheim congregation that signed his call. And he said, I am not going to minister to a church whose um, congregants are slaveholders. I'm not going to do it. Here's a man of principle. In fact, that act actually caused synod, this is, from the rep, this is from the RPCNA, that denomination, caused that synod to then uh, take some action about the congregation, congregations and their calling of a pastor. There was then a prohibition. You could not, as a slaveholder, uh, be a, a member in good standing in that denomination. And so you couldn't then call the pastor. I thought that was encouraging at the time anyways. And you can spend a lot of time on social media looking at stuff that just shows how people and companies have failed to do the one job that is expected of them to do. And most of these are, are rather humorous. You open your store-bought can of chickpeas only to find kidney beans instead. Saw one that was a, a squishmallow, which are the child's treasure today. Squishmallow that clearly looks like Mario, but on his chest it says Captain America. There was a, a t-shirt selling store, whatever you call them these days, and on the t-shirt, long sleeve t-shirt, it says, have a good die. I thought, just two letters, just change it. You know, have a good day. I think that's what you meant. Or one technologies company in 2021 recalled 200,000 smoke alarms over failure to warn of fire. So really, there is just one job if you're a smoke alarm company, just one job to do, and that's to warn people of a fire. You fail at that, and you endanger lives. Well, this Levite had one job, and it was to point people to the Messiah to show them the one who is truly like the Lord. And he fails at every point to point Micah, whose name means who is like, the, like Yahweh, to the real one who is like the Lord. What, my, what this Levite should have done is he should have said, no, I'm not going to be your personal Levite. Look at all these idols. That's why I read Deuteronomy 12. Look at all these idols. This is not the place of worship. This is not how we are to worship. We must destroy these idols. I will help you destroy all of these idols, and I will point you to the true Lord who is worthy of this worship. That's what he should have done. 
And we all then would do well to surround ourselves with people who can point us to the Christ, people whose lives are trustworthy and exemplary, wise, humble, full of love of Christ and of the church. The Messiah and the Messiah alone, Jesus Christ, can bear the weight of salvation that our sins demand. Now, maybe Micah's sins resonate with your own heart. Maybe right now you are struggling, you want the Lord, and you fill in the blank. Whatever it is, it's still an idol. You want the Lord and whatever. Maybe you are like his mom, blinded by her idol that was her son, who could not deal with sin, but had to overlook sin. Maybe you are like this Levite, who has compromised the mission of the Messiah for ministry comforts, for the glories of leadership. Or maybe you are like none of these, in any of these particulars. But as you read and reflect on chapter 17, you say, wow, this family sure seems to have hit rock bottom. And I can relate to that. Well, the blessing of hitting rock bottom is that there is that rock of ages cleft for you in which you can run. And his name is Jesus Christ. Levite, this Levite cannot bear the weight of Micah's sins. Micah cannot bear the weight of his own sins. Neither one of these men can satisfy the demands of the law. His mom couldn't do it. Nobody in that household, his sons, nobody. Nobody in the area. Nobody except the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Back then and now, he alone can satisfy the demands of the law. He alone can usher in salvation. And he has done that with his once for all sufficient final sacrifice on the cross being condemned for you and me. His name alone is to be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Our God of all grace, we see in this text so much idolatry. At the same time, by contrast, that the call then to find um, satisfaction, real prosperity, real blessing in you, from you, to worship you and you alone. And Lord, every one of us never measures up to the standard. And so we are thankful for your mercy. We are thankful for your grace. By your grace, you have allowed us to worship you this day, that you will aren't against us. We are thankful, O Father, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because his name has been given to us. We are thankful for this gracious union with Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would be more like Christ, that our worship would be more and more in conformity with your word and in spirit. Amen.